You know, when this gospel meeting was conceived many, many years ago by Brother Linwood Smith of Mississippi and Brother, Brother Tom E. Smith of Hilton, Oklahoma, they decided then that they wanted to give the big night to the young speakers. And we have maintained that tradition since that time. Uh, the big night, you know, New Year's Eve, has been reserved uh, for the young speakers. And uh, I just want to say that I'm looking forward to that. I know we've got some good ones here this, uh, this evening. And with that in mind, I will offer a bit of advice given centuries ago from an old preacher to a young preacher. And of course, uh, that was the Apostle Paul is speaking to Timothy. After Paul was released from his first imprisonment in Rome, he uh, and Timothy visited the church at Ephesus, and they found the church there in desperate need of instruction. Now, for some reason, Paul uh, feels compelled to continue his journey into Macedonia, and so he leaves Timothy in Ephesus to set the church in order. Timothy was just a boy living with his parents when Paul took him uh, as his companion on the first occasion. And now, about 15 years later, Timothy is still regarded as a young man when Paul uh, leaves him in Ephesus uh, to take care of this matter, and he writes him the letter, the first letter from Macedonia. Paul has at least two reasons for writing this letter to Timothy. Probably had more than that, but there are two reasons uh, definitely that he wrote the letter. Uh, first of all, in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, he said, These things I write unto you, that uh, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God. Then he adds in 1 Timothy 4, and verse 12, Let no man despise thy youth, and be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And so uh, both of these really were written out of concern for Timothy's youth. Paul says, these things I write to you, Timothy. Well, what did he write? You take a look at what he wrote in chapter 2 and verse 8. He talks about proper prayer. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about modesty. In verses 11 through 15, he talks about the proper roles for men and women that are arbitrarily assigned by God based upon the creation, such as the men will do the public teaching and the women will remain silent. In chapter 3, he talks about church government and the qualifications of elders and deacons. And then in chapter 4, he talks about some of the heresies that Timothy can expect the church in Ephesus to challenge in uh, the future. Now, it's probable that Timothy already knew these things. These are basic doctrines of the church, but the Ephesian church didn't know them. And so Paul writes this letter to give Timothy apostolic authority for all that he teaches. He wasn't going to be just another young gun that was going to come in and line everybody out, but he was going to have a letter from an apostle that gave him authority for teaching all of them, including older men and women whose experience 
goes far beyond his. It seems like there's always been those who are reluctant to accept teaching from young preachers. Years ago, there was a young preacher that visited our congregation in Ada, and uh, one of his sermons was on the family. And after he left, there was an elderly sister uh, who uh, said angrily, we don't need some young punk coming in here and telling us how to raise a family. Well, I will tell you this morning that uh, I've had a lot fewer people jump me at the back door of the building after services and take me to task over something I said in my sermon since my hair has turned white. The late Clovis Chapel had this to say. He said, it came as a shock to me as a young preacher to discover that there were certain strange folk in my congregation who did not approve of everything that I did. It's even more shocking to learn that there were those who were not greatly impressed by my preaching. He said, I could hardly believe it at first, and possibly I still think that such are a bit lopsided, but this uh, no longer fills me with grieved amazement. I can now be fairly happy in spite of this bit disapproval. Why is this the case? It's not that their disapproval is sweet in itself. It's rather that I've learned to console myself with the consideration that nobody has a universal appeal. However good one may be as a church teacher, however excellent as an official, however gifted as a preacher, there are those whose bell one does not ring. Now, if I see a man who's asleep, I'll wake him if I can. And if I can't, I'll stop looking at him. If I don't, my interest in him might allow those who are yet awake to go to sleep. So I focus my attention on the listeners. Even so, I win those who do not approve if I can. But if I can't, I give my attention to those who do. In any case, I no longer break my heart because I cannot win everybody's approval. Well, Paul is well aware of the fact that Timothy was not going to be able to win everybody's approval. And he wasn't going to be able to win everybody's love. Uh, the Lord, he was the friendliest man who ever lived. The most loving man who ever walked the face of this earth. And yet, he was unable to love, win everybody's friendship and love. He was despised and rejected of men. There were some who, uh, as he went about doing good, that loved him with a passionate devotion. But there, there were others who hated him to the point of having him nailed to a cross. And Jesus was convinced that those who live his same kind, his kind of life is going to meet that same kind of antagonism. At least he says, woe unto you when all men speak well of you. Now, he's not saying that hatred is better than love. He's just simply saying that if his followers stir up no opposition whatsoever, then something's wrong. Well, Paul is aware that there are certain responses we would like to have from our fellows that we're not going to be able to command. So he wants Timothy to win people to his way of thinking as far as possible. Win their approval and love if he can. But above all else, win and hold their respect. He said, conduct yourself in such a way that no one can justifiably despise your youth. Well, he lists six areas after that. And I'll tell you, there's no rhetoric there's no brilliancy of thought, no ability to apply scripture or illustrate a point that can make any 
minister of Christ. Really useful and effective if his character and reputation are deservedly despised. Then in his six areas, he said he's to be an example of the believers in word. His preaching must be according to God's word. Uh, in 2 Timothy 1 and 13, he said, uncorrupt, sincere, sound speech, which cannot be condemned. And then in 1 Timothy 4 and 13, he tells Timothy to devote himself to reading. And that's reading privately and reading publicly. About five years ago, there was a young brother who was about 40, young brother to me, uh, told me that he would like to preach. And as we visited a little bit, he made the observation, you know, I don't guess I've ever read a book in my life. I thought, oh, well, if you're planning to preach, you need to devote yourself to reading and develop your reading skills because you're going to be reading for the rest of your life. He said also in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, preach the Word. When we preach the Word, we preach with authority. Everything else is commentary. Then he goes on to say in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God for and is profitable for doctrine, what is right, for reproof, what is not right, for correction, how to get right, and for instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. Then he goes on to say that he should be an example of the believers in uh, this, this word, uh, word, that's his private conversation as well. His speech was not to be corrupt, vain, or foolish, but always with grace and seasoned with salt. And I want to tell you, any preacher, young or old, compromises his ability to command the respect of others if he's a gossip, a tale-bearer, a backbiter, or guilty of filthy and indecent talking. Then he goes on to say that Timothy is also to be an example of the believers in conversation. King James' word, that means behavior. In other words, just practice what you preach. And then he said he's to be an example of the believers in charity, which is love. Our love for our unseen Savior and our love for the other souls purchased by Him will determine our speech to and about others and our behavior toward them. There's a little passage in Ephesians 4 and verse 32 that contains the key to successful human relations. Paul says, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, even as God also in Christ forgave you. 1 Corinthians 13 and 4, he adds, Love suffers long and is kind. How much of the pain, heartache, and enmity between nations, churches, families, and individuals could be eliminated altogether with just a little practice of loving kindness. Are you a kind, thoughtful, considerate person? Now that may be one of the most penetrating questions you could ever ask yourself. And it may be easy for you to give yourself the benefit of the doubt and uh, Answer affirmatively when in reality it may be a little underdeveloped. 
in your character. Probably a better way to determine would be to ask the people who know you. Do they consider you to be uh, kind and thoughtful? Do your neighbors see you as being uh, considerate and unselfish and helpful? What about your children? They never regard you as being thoughtful and considerate. Your companion, kind. Uh, do they consider you to be kind and gentle? Probably what other people see in us is a better clue to reality than the estimate we have of ourselves. Well, what can you do to cultivate just plain old everyday loving kindness? Act on impulses to say or do something for somebody else. Next time you have an impulse to do something nice for somebody, do it. Don't put it off. If you do, you may find the opportune moment for action has passed. One preacher said a friend of his wrote an article in a religious journal that was exceptionally good. And he said, I had a strong impulse to write him a letter and to tell him how much it meant to me, but he said, I didn't write. He said, a few months later, I saw him and I told him of my intentions to write and how much I had enjoyed his article. And I said, I'm sure you heard from a lot of others. And he said, you know how many wrote? He said, not a one. Do you remember the note that you intended to write to your friend when her mother died? But you delayed because you just didn't know exactly what you wanted to say. You didn't know how to say it. And days passed and months passed and the opportune moment for writing passed as well. Sympathy that's unexpressed has no power to lift the heart and to bring comfort to the spirit. But the warm impulse of the heart is one of the few things that can't be bought with money and yet it has the power to bless both the giver and the receiver when it's expressed. I've got a letter with me this morning that I've had in my possession 50 years. I'm going to read it to you. I hope I can read this. Uh, years ago, there was a preacher who was standing at the back door of a church building, shaking hands with everybody as they were leaving, and he said that there was a elderly couple that came up to him and spoke to him, shook hands with him, and the elderly man stuck a letter in his hand and he said, when you get, when you get a chance, I want you to read that. Well, he said he got home and he found the letter and he said he opened it up and he found that it was a letter that was written by this elderly couple's son to them. And it read, Dearest Mother and Dad, on several occasions, I've tried to write this letter. However, each time I've tried, I've found it difficult to find what are the exact words. But I want you to know that I think that you're the finest mother and father in the world. And I pray that uh, we can be to our children the kind of parents that you've been to us. Dad, I remember the first time I discovered you were not like other fathers. We had gone to the football game to watch Baylor play. Baylor had moved to the 10-yard line of the opponent when I told you I had to be excused. And you asked if I could wait for a little while. And when I said no, you didn't become angry or say, uh, I'm never going to bring you to a football game again. He said, you just simply took me out and you bought me a soda as we came back to our seats. 
I remember when I got uh, in, in high school, I always got the car on Friday and Saturday night. You never mentioned this meant you had to walk 20 blocks to your work, work all night, and walk home the next morning. He said, then there was the incident about your old blue suit. John and I were both ashamed of that suit when you visited our college campus. And when we told you that you ought to buy a new one, you simply replied, hey, I'm not trying to impress anybody. I've already won my girl. We didn't realize then that finances would not permit you to keep two boys in college and buy new clothes. Mother, you know what I remember best about you? Your laughter. You were never too busy to play with us, to read to us, or to talk to us about God. I still remember when we were boys, the Sunday evenings, when we went into your room, sat in a circle, and you told us a story from the Bible or talked to us about how good we ought to be and how much we ought to love God. We knew God must be someone very special by the way you loved Him. There were always clean shirts in the closet, socks in the drawers, but I never stopped to consider how they got there. Now I know. The memory of our family's ideals, purposes, and efforts is one of the stoutest reinforcements of my life and one of my most precious possessions. I shall always be grateful to you. May God bless you, your son. The preacher said when he read that, he drove over to this elderly couple's house, gave the letter back to the old gentleman, and he said, the old fellow said, you know, I own this house, we own this house. We own all this furniture. We own those cars out front. He said, I've got money on investment. We've got money in the bank. But that letter means more to us than all these things combined. You know what I did? When I first read that letter, I called my mother, who was still living, and I told her I loved her. And I'm ashamed, I confess to you, at how awkward I felt at the time as I grappled to find just the right words. Well, if you are fortunate enough to still have a mother and a father, or a mother or a father, you would do well as the example of the believers to get in touch with them and to tell them you love them. Paul tells Timothy, he said, if you're going to be of any service in this difficult field in which you find yourself, he said, you're going to have to command the respect of those that you seek to serve. And the only way that you can do it is by being an example of the believers in word, behavior, love, and faith. And you know the wonder of this is that this is something that is within the reach of all of us. Now there are some prizes that you and I will never win. But this one right here is one that can be ours. If you're not a Christian, you need to become one. Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, 
be baptized in water for the remission of sins. If you are a child of God, but you have strayed away, we invite you to return while we stand and sing.